Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the thirteenth chapter of the Dhammapada, or right at the midpoint of our twenty twenty one structured study of the Dhammapada. This chapter is called the Lokavaga. Uh, Loka refers to the world, so it's about the world. And um, this is also very similar to uh, an important sutta called the Loka Sutta, which is a sutta where the Buddha uh, recounts what he observes just post his awakening when he looked out on the world from these newly awakened eyes and uh, a very powerful statement from that is he i looked out on the world and the world is aflame aflame with what aflame with the fires of passion and the world has still been burning for 2600 years with those fires of self-referential passions so the world has like a lot of uh, in the buddha's dhamma significant words have two meanings and so the world means the world it means being entangled in this chaotic, confused world. But it's also the metaphor for a mind and body that is confused about its own relationship with the world as the world. And when you think about that, my views of myself in relation to the world are experienced here, not out there. I'd like to keep projecting them out there because then I don't have to take responsibility for them. But every thought and every feeling generated from that thought, I own no matter how much I want to disown that, or avoid ownership by distraction or uh, compulsive behavior. And every, every human being has, well, I shouldn't say, I don't know every human being. Most of the human beings I've met have that comp- compensatory way of living in the world. Uh, it, it, and that's what's called conditioned thinking or self-referential views. In this chapter, <clears throat> uh, the Buddha first tells us why we don't want to be entangled or associated with the world. But then he also tells us how to live in peace, disentangled from the world. The Buddha's words, do not associate with what is offensive. Do not live mindlessly. Abandon fabricated views. Do not dwell in the world. So dwelling in the world means having established yourself in the world and maintaining that fabricated view as your life. And the Buddha likens that rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, as like a living death. (coughs) Excuse me. Why is it like a living death? Because we're living a fabrication. We're not having the actual experience of my life in this moment. It's clouded by my views of myself in relation to the world that are rooted in ignorance of the way things truly are. And so it is like a living death. I'm not aware of really what's occurring, even though I feel like I'm in the midst of it. Be mindful, not mindless. Live with virtue. The virtuous live happily always. We don't have to guess at what virtue is. It's it's part of the Eightfold Path, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And those are clearly defined. So again, there's no, no guesswork in this. We don't have to grasp after how to do this The Buddha taught us everything we need to know from 2,600 years ago, and his Dhamma is still here within this Sangha, the Triple Refuge. 
The living death of ignorance does not touch the wise who know the world is a bubble, like a mirage. That's an important line there, too. It's like a mirage. It's not a mirage. But it's like a mirage because we fabricated it. The same experience within the bubble of the world from an awakened human being is not like a mirage, is it? It's a reality. And so the same exact experiences will be experienced completely differently by someone whose mind is rooted in ignorance and one who is not. And in that way, that person, that awakened human being, ceases grasping after anything because their mind in that moment is fulfilled. But not fulfilled by objects, not fulfilled, not fulfilled by acquisitions, that person is fulfilled by understanding what it means to be a human being. And that is its own reward. Each and every moment has meaning. Why? Because I'm here for it. I'm living my life in this moment. So the things that I used to object to, I no longer object to them because I know I can't to what's occurring. And the things that used to distract me into bliss because of look what I have are no longer distracting. It's another peaceful experience because my mind is calm and at peace. And all those things that I found boring, all the ambiguities in life, are also meaningful because I'm present for it. Because you're present for it. John, yes. a question. It goes back to Tom's before class, how does that apply to the attachments of loved ones and things that you're attached to living in the world? <coughs> it, it's, uh, it's what an important question, and it's almost too broad to answer briefly, but briefly, but I'm going to give it a try. Mm. Um, the human relationships run the gamut, right? Mm. From, from uh, extremely intimate and very, very clinging to um, minor associations with people, but they're all important. Each and every relationship is important. Even if it's just passing somebody in a store, it's important how we see that person. But in our closest relationships, that's really where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? Because we're not dealing with just our own fabrications. We're also dealing with another person's fabricated view of themselves in relation to the world, just as we are, or at least just as we used to be. And it is through understanding ourselves that we're able, and this again directly talks to what Tom brought up earlier, it allows us to be, when, let me say it this way, when our minds are free of conflict, we are free of conflict with others, no matter what they are presenting to us. And in that way, we can be much more loving and compassionate to the people we want to be most loving and compassionate with. Why? Because I'm no longer trying to get what I need out of this. I'm simply present for another person, like I am for that person <clears throat> I just passed in the, in the grocery store. It's the same presence, but of course it has more meaning in intimate and close relationships. They also become very difficult because as we start um, developing a more realistic and peaceful view of the world, we of course want that for the people that we love the most, don't we? And it can become very frustrating when they're not interested or not inclined. And again, it's the, it's 
the ongoing development of the Dhamma that allows us to live at peace with other people who aren't necessarily now sharing our views. And again, that's rooted in understanding. It's also rooted in something I talk about often. As we develop the Dhamma, we gain that profound ability to separate the need to approve of something if we need to accept it. We separate the need for approval. And we no longer approve of anything. Approving of whatever is occurring is, is rooted in self-referential views, isn't it? But acceptance is what in awakened human beings. Why do I accept what's occurring? And again, it doesn't mean that I approve it. When I hear about rampant poverty in the world, I don't approve of it. No, no human being would. But I accept it without losing my mind over it because it's simply what's occurring. And in that way, I'm able to make some real change in the world too. And using an extreme example like poverty, we can certainly make an effect, real change in our interpersonal relationships, even if it's just one person making the change. Because that person is changing towards peace and towards calm. So what a great question. I hope I answered it well. Yes, you did. Thank you. The Buddha continues. Look at the world. It is like a decorated royal chariot. There's nothing there. It looks great, but there's nothing there. Here, fools wander aimlessly, but the wise remain detached. They're not distracted by the baubles. Those who were once mindless and now are mindful illuminate the world like the moon freed from the clouds. That's how we make a difference to that person who are just glancing by in the, in the grocery store because they recognize it. They might not even recognize it so much as us, but we really do bring calm and peace to the world by the way we carry ourselves. When we become conflict-free in our own minds, we no longer create conflict in the world. That's the only way we're ever going to establish peace in the world. I don't know that it's ever going to happen, and that's not the goal of the Dharma. But if we truly love other people as much as we love ourselves, then we'll take to the Dharma and awaken. We'll free our minds of conflict. I'm going to read it again. This is the next line. Those who were once hurtful and are now helpful illuminate the world like the moon freed from the clouds. The world is blinded by ignorance. Like birds escaping a nest, very few have true insight and develop nibbana, develop awakening. And by the way, nibbana in the Pali or Sanskrit means extinguished, relating directly to what the Buddha's words are when he first awakened. Extinguishing the fires of passion. That's awakening according to the Buddha. It's not some magical or mystical fabricated establishment. It's extinguishing the fires of passion. No longer needing to constantly establish a fabricated me in the world. Swans follow the, the sun's path. Worldly people hope to pass through the air by psychic powers. And again, that's such a commentary on much of modern Buddhism and Buddhism over the, 20, over the past 2600 years where great weight in many traditions is, is placed on developing psychic powers as an example of awakening. And the Buddha said that's a foolish goal. He said it over and over again. Do not chase after psychic powers or a fabrication. They're only rooted in eye-making. And again, think about that. When I first got interested in Eastern religion, um, I was in a, my first rehab. By saying that, you realize I wasn't successful <coughs> Uh, took a couple. Uh, I was 19 years old and my sister uh, brought me two books. Uh, the novel Siddhartha by Herman Hesse 
and Think on These Things by Krishnamurti. Uh, and it's interesting, today. she just passed a year and a half ago, but to the day she dies, she insists that she didn't bring me those books. But I had them, I had them up until just a few years ago, just before Ron cleared out my book collection. I know she did it, and it wasn't that she was denying it, it, it was just, it was something that she did offhanded. Back then, most, there were big bookstores, but most bookstores, local bookstores, were your local pharmacy. And so it was just a couple of books she pulled off the shelf and didn't think much about it and handed me in rehab as you know, nighttime reading. It had such, both of those books had such a powerful effect on me, even though I was really messed up. And it got me going in a certain direction. It wouldn't bear any fruit until I eventually finally sobered up seven years later. Uh, but it established a direction in my life. There's just that, this fable about Siddhartha and uh, some words from Krishnamurti. I knew there was something else uh, that was meaningful in life. And up until that point, in rehab, I couldn't figure out anything about life. I was just frustrated because none of it made sense. And now it started making a little bit of sense. So that allowed me to get eventually to this point. The wise overcome Mara and the world. Mara is always metaphor for a corrupted mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. The wise overcome that, and so they overcome the world. The liar who has violated this one law is scorned forever. There is no evil they won't do. Misers are bound to the world. Again, another word for, for greed is, is being miserly. And we don't have to be just sitting on a pile of gold and not letting any of it go. We don't have to be like Scrooge. Any act of uh, lack of generosity, anything of lack of freedom by from me, and I'm not just talking about my possessions, you know, what, what I have in my wallet or my bank account. My soul, who I am. Well, we, I don't have a soul, so nix that. We don't have souls. <coughs> my very essence. This moment in my life can only have meaning if I am here for it and I can offer that to you. And I have nothing to offer you if I'm not present for the world. I can, I can make all kinds of grand gestures about offering things to you. Maybe money, maybe uh, valuable things. Maybe even making the fabricated offer of my time. But unless I'm truly present for myself in this moment... I can't truly be present for you. And that doesn't mean that we're all failures at life if we don't develop this. But what it does mean is our lives will have so much more meaning if we do. We'll no longer wonder why... I got a call a few years ago now from a guy who was all excited. He he said, I've been meditating for 18 years. I'm trying to remember the story. I've been meditating for 18 years and focusing on on the nothingness, Zen meditator. And he says, I feel like I have nothing in the world. Well, of course he has nothing in the world. That's what he's focused on. Nothing that would bring him present to his own life. But when we're present for our our life, right here and right now, I can then offer that to all of you. Why? Because I own it. I can't give anybody anything if I don't own it. And even if I'm making a generous donation of money, if I'm thinking about how generous I am, there's no generosity in that, is there? It's just eye-making. And even at that level, it's painful to me because I'm giving something up that I think I need rather than just finding a need and saying, here, I got a little bit, you take it. That's freedom. You know, we can have the biggest house with all the coconuts, but if we have to have the biggest house with all the coconuts, 
we're in trouble. We've just lost our minds and we lost our lives. But we can live in the biggest house with all the coconuts if we don't have to <clears throat> hoard them, if they're not us, if we don't take an identification by the things that we own. I was just mentioning to someone um, the other day, um, and she, she was describing difficulties. She, she's running her own business uh, and running her own business. And I said, you know, so-and-so, I says, do you realize that your business owns you? You don't own your business? And she, she got it. But most of us are like that. I had businesses you know, most of my life, and they owned me up until a certain point. And so I was successful, but I wasn't happy. And even though I got a lot of enjoyment out of the things that I did, there was also a lot of stress and suffering, an awful lot of stress and suffering. And looking back on it, most of it was when, I was think, when the business was reflecting on me personally. And then it hurt like hell. Knowing what I know now, it wouldn't have because I wouldn't have taken it so personal. Continue. Misers are bound to the world. <clears throat> Fools scoff at generosity. The wise share freely. This alone brings lasting happiness. And again, the Buddha is not just talking about material possessions. In fact, that's the least of it. The wise share freely. This alone brings lasting happiness. Better than being sovereign over the earth and the heavens is the completion of the Eightfold Path. That's today's chapter. The whole point, and I, I, I think the Buddha makes this here and also in the Loka Sutta, is that the world is not a bad place. It is a place that we need to be disentangled from, but the world is just the world. And it, it, it's not even accurate to say that it's good and bad, because it's really not. When we, when we have to find the good and the bad, we're still rooted in eye-making. The world is just what the world is. There's pleasant, there's unpleasant experiences, but none of the experiences of the world in this moment have to cause me to lose my mind. How can that happen? Well, first I have to root my mind in concentration, and then I have to develop a way of seeing what's occurring moment by moment. That's called right view. And that's developed through the Eightfold Path. So, let's go online first. John, you're the newest member of our Sangha. I'd like to hear what you have to say about the, to this morning's class. And I should say, nobody has to share. If you'd rather just stay, uh, maintain noble silence, that's fine too. But I'd love to hear what you have to say, John. Uh, okay. Um, I've been reading... Uh some of your material and other materials the last two months. And um, as it, it, it becomes clear that it makes the ultimate sense and simplicity, um, but trying to incorporate it into your, into your thinking, into your, um, your actions, into your speech is, um, is a challenge. Yes. But um, in my heart, I think it's right. So that's why I'm here and going through this, um, uh, I guess, experience. Um, uh, for the, this suit that you discussed now, uh, I don't have a question about it. I think I understand it. It, it doesn't seem to be complicated to me. Yeah. 
Um, it, um, but it's a matter of putting it into into your you know your life. Yeah. You know, and you know, hang up here today. You know, what what's the next thing I've got to do today, and how do you incorporate that? And um, and I, I I think sometimes also, and this might be off track. I'm not sure, but. Um, I, I sit in the back of my mind going, okay, when is the challenge going to happen? When is something from work or in my family life going to really challenge whether I've actually learned or, or uh, can I put what I'm trying to study here into practice? And I don't think I, I don't know, maybe, it, maybe it's happening. I don't recognize it, but that's, that's it. <laughs> that's, that, thank you, John. Uh, so how you put that moment in practice when you're projecting into the future? is you simply take a breath, unite your mind back in your body. That's Dharma practice. And in the next moment, you might fall back into that pattern of thinking and you do the same thing. And what you're doing is interrupting that conditioned thinking, that habitual way of thinking, moment by moment, as it's occurring. That is the, the basic practice. And as you continue, uh, you'll be incorporating more of the Eightfold Path in a mindful way. You'll, you'll simply, uh, what that means is you'll recognize when you're off the path, and you'll be able to take a breath and simply come back on. Um, and you said you've been practicing about two months. Is this your first time practicing Buddhism at all? I bought a book, and actually I was reading it further last night, uh, Buddhism for Dummies. <laughs> throw, throw the book out, please. <laughs> throw it out. Burn it. Because you're not. Now that's judgmental. Now that's judgmental. <laughs> I um, I bought that like five years ago after seeing a special on television. Um, you probably all know it. Maybe um, uh, it's a uh, on the Buddha's life. Yeah. And Thomas' life, and I found it interesting. And I've had a mild interest in religion all my life. I was uh, I went to a Jesuit college, so I'm not a Catholic or a Christian or anything. But I always had an interest in in these things. And so, yeah. Uh, I needed some guidance, and I also have mild depression, and I don't like it when I have depression, and I'm tired of the drugs and the prescriptions or the non-prescriptions. Uh, and uh, to, I made a change, and uh, I picked up the book again, but I found your site, and I uh, picked up a few other books, uh, Audible, great app, apps, and bought some items on meditation and mindfulness, and it's led me here. Well, nice. good for you. Um, I, I, I would suggest that if you want to understand what this is all about, to practice this alone for a while and just see how it works. Mm-hmm. Because I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed or not, what, what I teach is quite a bit different than what's out there. Um, and it, it's only because what I found something that actually works rather than something that just keeps me distracted towards other things. Um, but, and also, John, feel free to contact me at any time. Uh, send me an email. We'll, you know, we'll get together. Because um, I, I don't want you to be confused about what we're doing here. But it, I, I, I can tell you, you're on the right track. You're seeing things clearly. So good for you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, John. Um, welcome, John. Um, I'm also a product of Jesuit education, so I didn't know that. Um, and enjoyed it. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to the team here. Um, it's uh, wonderful to observe um, John on his path. Um, you know, as you as you speak, um, John, our teacher, can observe you know where you are and 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 where you're going on the path. So 
Um, it's great that you uh, shared with us today. Um, you know, certainly concentration is key to the integration of the Eightfold Path and uh, allowing us to be um, present for our lives as it happens. And the liberation that comes from understanding, truly understanding, not just intellectually understanding, but that's the integration and the experience that we have with this in our lives. And so we have moments of, you know, I've had moments of uh, clear understanding that validates that you're moving in the right direction. And then there are moments when you bump into things <clears throat> that identify that you need to get back on the path. Um, that you could be more present, that you're being distracted or whatever. Um, but I thought this sutta was very um, clear and plain in its language. And, um, you know, the message was um, very, very clear. So thank you for your teaching, John. Thank you, Mary. Let's go start the back. Good morning, Tom. Uh, good morning. Um, so I... I I thought that David's question and the timing of it and your kind of really elegant response tied thank with you. this lesson was just really lovely. So thank you for that. And uh, otherwise, I'm just going to retain my silence. Thank you, Tom. Glad you're here this morning. Good morning, Becky. Good morning, John. <clears throat> um, well, all I have to say is that do not dwell in the world. That sentence was made for me today because I have been dwelling too much in the world over yeah. the last, I would say, two or three weeks. Mm. And I just, um, that just reminded me that I have to <coughs> pick up my practice and pay attention more to my, to my meditating and my because it's really uh, not possible to be in right view or be calm and peaceful if you don't if you don't meditate <laughs> you have to meditate every day and I've just learned that because I let let it go a little bit more than I should have so thank you John I thank you, Becky, for pointing that out. And that's just how the practice works, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You recognize you're stuck in the world too much. And it's a very unpleasant... Very unpleasant. Yeah. <coughs> but again, when we're sensitive to it, and that's, you know, the, the Dhamma makes us sensitive to reality, right. then we can do something about it. Exactly. You know? exactly. And, and we're so fortunate that we know this is what you do. Take a breath, get back in your body, and then develop that understanding through the path. So, mm -hmm. Thank, thank you. you. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, John. Everybody, um, thank you. That was illuminating as always. But I had a, I had one observation and one question. Sure. Um, the observation is that you know, as a, you're walking around a grocery store or whatever, and you are just being there, not taking things around you personally. That is a has a sort of a radiant effect, and you see the impact it has on other people. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're whatever you're helping someone get some, something off the shelf of the grocery store, and they recognize that kindness for you is just a self act. That person needs a hand getting something off the top shelf. Mm -hmm. You're not attached to it; you're just being there, doing that. 
And people recognize that kindness is because it's, it's so unusual and that kind of selfless just being in, in, in the world. Um, Especially today, it's unexpected. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Um, the question I had was um, that one line in here that I thought was a bit, uh, um, a bit extreme. Uh, the liar who has violated this one law is scorned forever. There's no, there's no evil they won't do. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Is, is that really someone condemned forever and they can't ever, uh, you know, no. release themselves from attachments? Because we understand impermanence that even the liar, and again, this takes a little bit broader understanding of what the Buddha taught, but even the liar uh, can change through the Dhamma. But it's also, a, a, as long as that person is a liar, this is the experience that they're going to have. And, and a liar is not just, you know, again, it has a broader meaning. It's not just someone who tells lies. It's someone who's living a false or fabricated life is a liar. And they are capable of any matter of... And the, the, it's not a, it's not a, the Buddha's not predicting great evil deeds. Any manner of evil is what that person will experience and bring into the world. Even, you know, again, using strong words, but even someone who is emotionally unavailable and manipulates others through that is a form of evil, isn't it? It's a, it's a hurtful behavior if we, if we give evil that connotation. So again, we use some of the time strong words. I use in my restoration somewhat strong words because they're what's in the original. But to make that point, you know, we, we, we make... I used to make excuses for myself by saying, I'm not as bad as the other person, you know? That's, that's the biggest fabrication of all because I might not be as bad as the next person, but it eat me up alive. It's destroying me. And the thought that allows me to keep going is I'm not as bad as that, that other guy. When I was trying to come to grips with my addiction, it was, there was always someone who was much worse than me. Always. I mean, I, and I made sure of it. I made sure I had, you know, that I could, yeah, I'm not as bad as that guy, you know? Look at that. I was about as bad as it gets. But again, the, the, we all do it. We all have this com compensatory way of fabricating ourselves in relation to the world so that we can live in the world in a fabricated way. What a great question. Well, so that, that law then, the, the, in that line, oh. is, that, is that the um, the law is to live mindfully? Yes. Be, be mindful rather than mindless? Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. It's, and it's just that. This section comes out of the, the Buddha teaching his son, ah. the Rahula the Sutta. Yeah. Uh, where he uh, where he catches his son being <clears throat> dis dishonest to himself, and and he tells him there that this is the beginning <clears throat> of all your problems. Rahul is seven all at the, the time. Evil. Yeah, and uh, it's it's. Uh, and he, he really drives it down in, in that sutta. If you ever, you pick it up and, okay. and, and read it, uh, like this is the, in his kind of words, this is the root of all your evil. Right? Yeah. If you can, if you lie to yourself, you're capable of all these, you know, yeah. dumb things in life. Yeah. There's, a, there's a lot in that one. That's the initial fabrication. But again, you think that it's not a predictor that he's going to be the worst person in the world. But he's going to have one awful life. And as it turns out, Rahula understood it, and he actually joined the Sangha when he was, I can't remember, 14 or 16 or something like that. Thank you very much. And that's Thank the you. interruption. Pardon me? That's the interruption. Yeah. The, the Buddha interrupted Rahula's way of thinking through the Dhamma. 
that next moment isn't to be scorned <coughs> taking up the path again. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it's each moment. So your opportunity to not be scorned is the practice. Yeah. The opportunity when you're, in Becky's case, she understands it and she's come back to it. So that's that moment when <coughs> interrupting the, the pendant and the origination. You're, you have an opportunity at that point of contact to decide yeah. to be skillful or not. Yeah. Like, like restraint to the breath. That, and, yeah, and that's the right word. We have the opportunity. <coughs> Are we going to take it? Because each and every moment is an opportunity to awaken. It's only here and now that that's possible. The uninstructed, on the other hand, will be in delusion and just be in that life yeah. forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that compensatory way of thinking, blaming the world and, or, or yourself. I mean, that's why I say self-loathing <coughs> is a common human problem. You know, if, if these bad things are happening to me because I deserve it or I'm not, I'm inept, I'm not good enough or smart enough or tall enough or short. And by the way, I help people with the lowest shelf. So. <laughs> Good morning, Kevin. <laughs> but I still do it. That's another coincidence. Yeah. So another thing with uh, New John, you know, it's also I am a product of Jesuit education, and I wow. also started with Buddhism for dummies. I started to meditate. Um, well, actually, I started with a book, one breath at a time. And um, I started to meditate from that, and then I thought, well, okay, this is Buddhism. All right, well, what's Buddhism? So I didn't know how to distinguish Buddhism from Hinduism or other religions, so I thought, well, okay, let me go to the bookstore. So I went and I saw Buddhism for Dummies, and I thought, well, let me just try that first. And it does, I mean, it, it's not really dumb. It's, it has a lot of valid points, and it talks about the whole scope of Buddhism, of every different manifestation of it, and Yes. So, and that was about six weeks before I met you. And then, so, that was five years ago, and I started coming here. And just to let New John know, too, that it's sort of like a similar path. I thought, okay, this is something that's really valid. And the more I read and the more I came, the more I felt it and knew it. So. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. And I just, I should... You know, put that disclaimer. I don't. All those books for dummies are good. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I have dog walking for dummies. That help me a lot. <laughs> good morning, Dustin. Good morning. I'm gonna take noble silence. I'm glad you're here this morning. <clears throat> morning, David. Good morning. I will as well. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, Jen. I'm not gonna take noble silence. I think I have a question, but maybe it's just an observation. I. Definitely, in the past week, recognized some hardened views that I've been, like, I feel like I pushed over a log and, like, there's bugs skittering everywhere in my mind, you know, um, of that... I, I was always seeing, but um, wasn't fully owning. And I was seeing it, but I was not, I, I thought I was just coming back to the breath, but what I was really doing was I was averse to 
really addressing some of the, some of the patterns of thinking that were really, now that I see it clearly, uh, mean to myself. And um, something that you said today really struck me because I recognize um, owning your own feelings and thoughts when you're dealing with others. I, I, I see that. I see how you have to, I see that irony of having to fully own how you're feeling and how you're thinking um, in order to skillfully interact with others in, from, in, in a fully compassionate way. But I wasn't seeing that you have to fully own it in order to like really have that good relationship with yourself. And so there's like that irony there that's like striking me now where, yeah. um, in order to let go of conditioned views, you first have to own that, you know, so, and that, I almost feel like I'm not even supposed to say that because it sounds like kind of like I'm making, like if I'm saying I'm owning my feelings and thoughts, like you're stepping into acknowledging that that's what's happening, but it's not like you're joining with them. I understand it, but to put it into words is, is where like, um, I don't think I've ever successfully done, and I think that you saying that today, you have to first own your feelings and your thoughts before you can like let them go. Yeah. Is uh, anyway interesting. It's like you're moving towards them. You have to move into them before you can. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, I, it's always good to hear that I use a lot of words, but one of them every now and then. <laughs> it's good to hear it. And think about it, it. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it's because we disown yeah. what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're feeling. Put it on the world or on other people mm -hmm. or in a negative way on ourselves. <clears throat> I shouldn't feel this way. Right. <clears throat> That's the opposite of it. And of course we can't. We, we can never come to grips with it or understand it because we don't own it. We're yes. disowning it. Yes. And so owning is not, in this sense, it's not, it's not a form of eye-making. Right. It's simply a recognition of what I'm doing to myself yeah. in this moment. Yeah. And that gives us the freedom because it, it allows, once we own something, we can abandon it. Yeah. And we can do it easily too, can't we? Mm -hmm. you, know, I, I own, you know, I own 10 bucks. I can talk, I won't. Don't anybody <laughs> win. But I have the freedom to do it. Yeah, yeah. What's more important is to own who we are in this mm. moment. Whatever our mind is, it's also the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Mm. This is the present quality of my mind. Be at peace with it. And Jen just described that. She, she, she had a, 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 an immediate visceral reaction yeah. to something, but you were able to own it. Mm. And I would bet your mind is now conflict-free because of it. It's just that way. So mm. Thank you. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. Um, I was just thinking about something that David said, I think, during a teaching of a retreat, how experiential this practice is. Yeah. And it's, um, 
it's self-correcting. Like it has, it has this like self-correction feeling as you're going through the experience. Yes, yes. Um, so I've been feeling that. That's outstanding because it is. Yeah. It, it ultimately just just that you are, we are correcting the way that we think about ourselves. Yeah, and acknowledging but, that something needs correction. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it, again, not in a negative way. It's just that this this way of thinking no longer serves me. And it no longer serves me because it's rooted in a fabrication. It's not a reality. Yeah, right. and there's this um, phrase that I teach my daughters that I think is becoming more pertinent. I tell them to find the sweet spot. <laughs> like when I, things are going yeah. awry or something like that, I'll just, whatever it means to them, but I say find the sweet spot. Yeah. And like not the spicy that. spot. Not the spicy spot. <laughs> <laughs> and the sweet spot. So I feel like that's what um, we're all trying to do. And I tell it to them, but I don't do it. For myself, as often. You're starting to. Yeah, the sweet spot is that conflict-free quality of yeah. mind, isn't it? And what a great thing to teach your kids at such an early... I mean, they don't have to understand the dollar yeah, to understand do. that, do they? Mm-hmm. They do like sweet things, so they're yeah. like, all right, yeah. that feels good. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> thank you, Nina. Yeah, thank you. Good morning, Ron. Good morning. Ah, this was all great stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm going to take noble silence. I can't add to that. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, it, it is really good stuff, uh, we're going to continue with the, the Dhammapada. Uh, like I said, this is the midpoint, the 13th chapter. There's 26. Um, and we're going to keep moving on to uh, other things within the Dhamma. Um, and I, just to remind everyone here, I think you've all read the, the new purpose statement in the Sangha guidelines, but I just want to mention them again. It's, it's, it's important that uh, there be structure. You know, that. The, the rules um, that we're using are very similar to the original rules called the Pati Moksha uh, in the original Sangha. So even with the Buddha as the teacher and the leader of that original Sangha, they needed rules just to form a structure that would be uh, beneficial for everyone to develop the Dhamma. And that's really been um, you know, the whole focus for me to be here and all of us to be here is not just for me to do it, it's for, for us to support each other. Uh, Jane, who's not on this morning, she usually is, talked about the responsibility that we have as Sangha members to each and every one of us to develop the Sangha and bring it into this room and leave, leave, the, 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 leave the world outside. And uh, we do a pretty good job of that. But the, you know, the purpose statement and the, the Sangha guidelines ensure that for each and every class. So thank you for taking the time to <coughs> read it and understand it. Uh, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. And again, I changed a, a few words in here. You might not even notice it, but in case you do, that, that it's on purpose. The Karaniya Metta Sutta, the Buddha's words on Metta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease.
Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. That was a great one, guys. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> See you, Mary. See you, John. Bye, John. Thank you. Bye, Mary. Bye, everyone. Bye, John. See you, John. See you, Mary. Bye. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming buddha Thank you. Peace.